Welcome back to Don't Open This Podcast. I am your host, Mike, joined by my other host, Tim. And today we're going to get into some really deep layered stuff. We try to pack all of our episodes full of insightful information, but today we're covering dream worlds and hellscapes. Some of you might be trying to figure out what that could entail. I think overall, it's an idea that came to us that made sense of like, oh, okay, like these all kind of go together. And then once I started thinking about them more, it was all of these movies are drastically different. And then it like one step further, it was, but also there's like themes and ideas kind of down at the kernel that do all end up kind of tying back together. Yeah, if if you look at it as dreams and nightmares, both of those play huge parts in the genres of horror and sci-fi and fantasy. And I think... In our original list that we were putting together, Tim and I were like trying to divide a few movies that are about dream worlds and a few movies that are about hellscapes. And then all of a sudden, that age old term of of the yin and the yang and how darkness must balance light, they're, they're inherent to each other. The more we ended up revisiting our list and watching the movies freshly, it actually uh, very much like a dream the dreams and the nightmares sort of blend together so that almost every film on our list is not predominantly one or the other. It's actually like a balance of both. Yeah. The dark side and the light side, I guess you could say. Because I mean, really there's plenty of times where you have a dream that just like takes one slight turn and all of a sudden now it starts to get into nightmare territory. And I think that kind of goes with a number of these. It's, it could be a dream. It could be a nightmare. It depends on, the person, and it depends on all these other factors in there, as we'll see. And we both love uh, dream logic because I'm sure avid listeners have heard us use that term whenever we're talking about uh, a lot of times Italian cinema or just some of the more out there, uh, like psychedelic fantasy films. So you all are probably assuming that you're going to hear about two different uh, franchises, and I think. Right off the bat, because this is going to become a very complex layered episode, I think we want to set your minds at ease. So one franchise you will not hear about is Nightmare on Elm Street. And yes, it is completely inherent to uh, dream logic, and it's all about dreams, but it is its own franchise. So we are going to cover 
either through our Wes Craven episode or if we do a deep uh, anatomy of a franchise, we're going to get to all the Nightmare on Elm Streets. And we also felt like every even passing fan of, of horror cinema, you guys all know Freddy Krueger, you know he's a dream demon and all that stuff. So we're tabling Freddy for right now, but we will be getting into a couple of films that might have influenced a few elements of Nightmare on Elm Street. And also... Similarly, we will not be covering Hellraiser, although one of our films will have kind of a uh, Cenobite proxy, if you will, uh, in terms of some of the characters. But like Mike said, it's characters and it's a whole world that we're going to get into more in depth as time goes on. We're not necessarily going to include it in in here, or at least not right off the jump. And Hellraiser, Hellraiser 1 and 2 was on our early list. And then you threw in Inferno, and then before we knew it, it was like, well, we're almost sort of, it's all connected. You kind of have to cover Hellraiser, like, as yeah. its own thing. But Barker does love, uh, I mean, his novel, uh, Weave World, is very dream-oriented. And even like um, uh, Lord of Illusions, it's magic, but it's still, th- there's still a lot of that in there. So this will be six movies that we really, really dig a lot that are dream worlds and hellscapes. And there's definitely enough in the pipeline, in the backs of our minds for one more episode, maybe even a third one over time. But we tried to pick some diverse like staples, you know, films that we're always trying to dig up some stuff that we think is amazing. And maybe for some reason, like unsung horror, it's one of our favorite genres. And these are sort of, uh, a few of them are unsung, dreamy, psychedelic movies that more people should know about. I think we're going to start with one that's more palatable, but... Yeah, and I, I think this is also one of the films that you might be familiar with the name. It might have even been something that you've watched before. But I think it's definitely something that if you haven't seen it in a while, it's worth going back to and kind of reassessing. Just because I know... Between the time when I originally saw this years ago and watching it again recently for kind of just refreshing for the show, I took away a lot more now than I definitely did back when I originally saw it. And that film is what, Mike? That would be Jacob's Ladder from 1990, directed by Adrian Lin. Jacob Singer is afraid. When he walks down the street, People are watching. When he comes home at night, people are waiting. Jacob Singer is running out of time. This fall, Adrian Line, the director of Fatal Attraction, brings us a disturbing new vision. Jacob's Ladder. I got to agree with Tim. It's something that hits way differently as an adult than it does as a, a teenager or if you're a kid. I mean, I don't know. If, if a child sees this movie, it's going <laughs> to run them through the ringer. Um, 1990, you know, I was, I was like, I think I was in... It was either an eighth grader or it was like my freshman year in high school or something. But I did see this movie when I was pretty young and it did have an effect on me. 
So that is what we're cracking this whole thing open with. It was a movie that for years growing up, I always heard about Jacob's Ladder and I always thought it was a more recent, like post 2000s movie. I never realized until I finally watched it that it was 1990 and it ends up taking place in New York City where every time I talk about like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I talk about my nostalgia for New York that I was never a part of. This mystical late 80s, early 90s New York where the the pizza was fresh and the lights weren't as bright. And then I watch Jacob's Ladder and realize it takes place around the same time, or it's like filmed around the same time as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And is this yeah. terrifying downtrodden New York that it's interesting seeing that juxtaposition between what it could be if you film it one way, what it could be if you film it in Jacob's Ladder way, and it ends up falling somewhere in between. But right yeah. off the jump, this whole mystical idea of New York, this movie instantly kind of put me in that mindset of right off the subway and he's looking at the signs and he sees the the Big Apple and then he looks the sign next to it and it just says hell. And it just really yeah. sets you up for the rest of like what this locale is going to be. Speaking of setting up, um, I always think it's very interesting when a director of a certain level of success or pedigree sort of steps outside of their normal repertoire and does a film that's part of their filmography and it feels like they made it, but it's drastically different from a lot of the, their other films. Um, Adrian Lynn is uh, a British director and he's probably most famous for fatal attraction with Michael Douglas. Um, he did the remake of Lolita. He did flash dance with Jennifer Beale and uh, you know, nine and a half weeks. And Tim and I were talking about there's sort of a, a theme. He's usually dealing with like uh sultry romance and, and intrigue and cheating and fidelity stuff. And yeah. that's like his vibe. But what's so strange is that, his romantic vibe, that sort of um, everything's a little diffused, like the lighting, things are, are are very almost erotic. Taking that and applying it to a story as bleak as Jacob's Ladder, which we're going to get into what the story is, I think it's important to know going in that, you know, this is not a Wes Craven making this movie. It's someone who's making things maybe that, I don't know, like a lot of uh a lot of straight-laced people would go in and escape you know to to these these films yeah. like nine and a half weeks you know it's it's like all of these movie covers or movie posters that look like you would see them on like a sultry romance paperback of like the the shirtless man holding a woman and then you get yeah. jacob's ladder and it's interesting to see because the entire movie definitely doesn't feel like it's a just like a director for hire just a journeyman coming in and it's just I'm no, this is this is a, a vision for yeah. sure. And I think it goes hand in hand with so um Bruce Rubin or Bruce Joel Rubin. So the the writer of this is the same writer who I guess originally he had this idea in mind since like the, the early 80s or something to that effect. But he was turned down for it because they said nobody really wants to check out uh like a ghost film or check out a a movie about this kind of supernatural presence. And he ended up doing ghost which ended up being a big hit. And then that's when he ended up being able to swing Jacob's ladder of now all of a sudden it's okay, we'll look at your script again. Let's take a look at this and get this off the ground. And that's yeah. when he ended up getting picked up with um, Adrian Lynn. And both of, uh, both of the 
the things we're talking about, like they're going to come back into play when we're talking about some of the, um, the interpersonal relationships and the way that stuff's handled in this movie. I think that definite, that flavor comes back in, but before we get ahead of ourselves, Jacob's ladder, you know, what is it about? Um, it, it is a very, a singular, um, tour de force, like one person kind of film. There are other people in it, but it really is all about Jacob Singer. And Jacob Singer is portrayed by Tim Robbins, who many people will know from many different movies, probably most famously Andy Dufresne from Shawshank Redemption. Or the hobo from Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny. Yeah, a few people might know him from that. <laughs> I mean, so, he's so been in other more yeah. well-known films. Uh, but this movie, it opens up in Vietnam. You, you get a little, a little precursor sequence in Vietnam. Some really bad shit goes down because we are going to try to mask any major spoilers from this review. So something terrible happens in Vietnam. And then we fast forward several years later to that character now in civilian garb. Uh, he works for the post office in New York City and he's going about his day just doing his thing. And Tim had mentioned the subway and all that uh, in the beginning because he, I guess the film really kind of kickstarts with him trying to get home from work. He was working late and some really subtle, but, but creepy stuff starts happening to him on his yeah, way home. It, it kicks it, off it's a very lot earlier subtle. than you would expect. Yeah, I thought, of, in my memory, it took a half hour or so, but it doesn't. It's it's like 10 minutes into the movie. Yeah, because instantly he's off of the, starts seeing visions on the subway. He's off the subway now, and he looks back, and you see all of these kind of vibrating faces all looking out from the glass of the subway as it takes off. And it really sets up the idea of, like, Jacob Singer of these things that he's seeing. Is he losing his mind? Is he still with it is there something supernatural going on and i think they do a great job of constantly keeping you guessing throughout the entire movie of what exactly yeah. is the reality which i think kind of goes in with all of the the dream idea that we were talking about of what's real what's not he's falling asleep and all of a sudden he's with uh jesse played by uh elizabeth pena his girlfriend but he's talking about his ex-wife but then he'll end up going under and then all of a sudden he'll wake up and it's he's in a hospital bed talking to his ex-wife who isn't his ex-wife. It's his current wife. And, oh, I had a dream about that girl <laughs> from the, the post office. And now all of a sudden he's back in Nam. It's everywhere. We kind of like threw you guys in, like like deeply into what the film starts doing. It, it is paced well. Um, it, it's not like an onslaught of things happening all at once, but... I think the film does a masterful job of every time you're starting to get your surroundings, because the camera's always with Jacob Singer for the most part. Um, you start understanding, like, here's his daily life or here's a routine. And just when you're starting to feel like you're getting the world that's being built, Adrian Lynn just throws in, like, a very subtle, quick moment. Um, I have to say that, like, anyone who has ever seen the artwork of Francis Bacon, who is a painter. Yeah. His paintings all looked like they were in motion. And any type of hallucination that Jacob Singer's seeing, I think as a viewer, you're sort of imagining that maybe it's 
it's some sort of PTSD from the because we already saw this horrible war sequence. But he seems like he wants good things in life. Like he's a very endearing character. And it oftentimes feels like he does have his shit together. Like he's not running around being erratic. He's he's just really trying to be a normal guy. And all of a sudden he'll see like a vagrant and he swears that there's like a tail or a tendril. Like you see this super quick flash or Tim mentioned the vibrating people. It's so subtle. It, none of it is ever in your face. It's just creepy enough. It's, it's just happening in the corner of the frame and you, you're not even sure if you saw it for, for the first few times that it occurs. Um, yeah. And as it progresses, you start understanding that something is fucked up. Like he keeps running into different people that are, are sort of um, making comments about him not being alive, but you know, he's alive. Like you're, you're following him. It's not like he's a ghost and it's uh, it's nothing like the sixth sense where he's not interacting with people only the one little kid, you know, and that's how Bruce Willis thinks he's alive. You're seeing Jacob in the world doing things. And he has a chiropractor that he loves, uh, Danny Aiello. Uh, oh, he goes and he sees yeah. him. <laughs> he's so good when his back hurts. Um, and I think that uh, when I was talking about Adrian Lynn's background, um, his relationship with Jesse, the, the girlfriend, it's so rare that I see a real couple, obviously not real, but a couple, a presented couple acting the way a real couple does. And what I mean by that is so often in a movie, if two people are in bed together and they're naked, one person does the quick slide out and kind of runs off to the bathroom. And then the other person always seems like if it's a woman, she'll always like sit in bed with her breast covered and like have a conversation and anyone who's been in a relationship, you know that when you're comfortable with who you're with, there's an aspect of like not caring if you're naked or the way you might talk about like what would seem like stupid shit to an outsider. But in a film, it's usually like well-written dialogue, like we need to yeah. get our dialogue across. The interplay between the two of them, I have always found that to be an extremely real and very well put together subplot of what's going on in, in the movie. I always buy them as a real couple. And I think that has a lot to do with all of the dramas and everything that Adrian Lynn was known for. But when you start folding in dark shit, it really makes that drama. It heightens it because you do care about the people. Jesse's not perfect. Like she's got attitude. Sometimes she gets jealous. She gets, um, you know, weary of herself and, and her, how solid her relationship might be with Jacob. And because he does mention his ex-wife, you know, on, on occasion, or as yeah. she says, it's, it's when you don't mention her, but I know you're thinking about her. It's things like that, that I think really round things out. We didn't even get to his, his children because he does have children. Uh, yeah. So he, he also has Macaulay Culkin in a young role here as well as the, the child, he tells Jesse that, his son, um, that he, he used to have his son passed away and his ex-wife and he's looking at these photos and she says, I don't like these things. I don't like the things that make you cry because he's thinking about what happened. And I think that kind of goes through the entire movie is the, the sense of kind of trauma and grief over him and whatever might have happened 
with the son, but also like what happened to him in Vietnam and what's happening to him yeah. now. And I like how we get introduced to them as a couple because we end up liking her. So when things start getting even odder and he starts acting more erratic, when we start questioning what's real, what's not real, then we have to start questioning, okay, but is she real or is this just this tragic situation of her having to watch the man she loves just completely disintegrate in front of her and it yeah. constantly keeps that moving so you're never kind of getting your full footing um throughout the movie it's like you said it's not doing it in a way that's kind of knee jerky or it's tossing you around um it's very familiar. organic it's yeah. off-putting but it's organic and i think between the script and the direction these are smart uh, talented people crafting this film. And I think they're doing something that I love, which is imagining what tropes viewers already know. And they're kind of playing with our minds of what we're expecting because Jacob's ladder is not two hours of a man having weird visions that wouldn't hold anyone's interest. That is the setup and, and the, the springboard to Jacob kind of going off in more of a detective sense, yeah, I think this movie would actually pair really well with Angel Heart, um, which we'll get to at some other point. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, Jacob starts, he starts accepting that some weird shit's going on and he doesn't know what it is, but he knows it, it's that there's something real to it. He He's not this guy that's just like, that's it, I'm crazy. He's like, I'm not crazy, but I got to try to find out what is going on now? Obviously, if he can't figure out if there if if the journey doesn't lead to answers, then sure, we're left as an audience being like he must be crazy. But what's cool about it is little by little, he he makes some connections, you know, back with a few guys from his platoon. I guess I don't want to call it the wrong thing for any military people out there listening. But yeah, he meets up with them. He does come to find out that a few of those guys are claiming that they're seeing similar stuff, which I think makes him feel, it makes him feel good in a way that he's not alone, but it's also freaking him out more because it's lending cadence to this being real. And obviously yeah. he, he doesn't want it to be real because it's horrifying. And the film just continually unfolds and it gets more and more uneasy. Something as simple as going to a party. It's like an apartment party. Yeah. And they're having like a, a little soiree at this this house. And he's running into a, a lady who's flirting with him, but reading his palm and telling him fucked up things about him based on his palm. And he's like trying to shrug it off and laugh. And and Jesse's there being like, Jacob, come dance with me. And you can see that like he's trying to just acclimate himself to ignoring this stuff and living life. But it keeps coming back stronger and stronger and more and more fucked up like the visions yeah, get it's, crazier it's like a dance sequence out of uh possession yeah i don't know for sure there's like there's a few connections to, the, <laughs> to that movie but yeah so this film i don't really think we could tell you guys where it goes because that would spoil everything but it becomes i think a really deeply layered emotional journey on weighing out what's important weighing out i think your perceptions and how you, I mean, everyone's heard that like, that life is 10% what's thrown at you and 90% the way you react to it. And I think that's a very true fact. I mean, because all of us live a very uncertain existence and so does Jacob Singer. 
and it's how do you react to these things that are thrown at you? Do you accept and embrace things that might not be easy to accept and embrace? And is maybe that the only way to move past things and, and accept the inevitability of your future, whatever it may be, and the unknowingness of your future? This is what, when we mentioned that, if you see it as an adult or or a kid, you see it as yeah. a kid, it's like a creepy monster movie. You see it as an adult, it's like fuck. You know, we don't get a long enough time on this planet, and and this is not a cool situation for this guy to be in. Um, so again, we're trying to skirt around uh, uh, the many secrets of Jacob's ladder. I think overall, in terms of the the movie, like we said, it's worth the watch. I don't want to spoil anything overall because I think it's. Even spoiling sequences, you need to, well, I don't think we can necessarily spoil them because you need to see them. They're visually kind of arresting. Yeah. Like, it's it's fascinating. But the one thing that I do want to mention as far as Jacob's Ladder is anybody who is familiar with it and wants more of kind of the that concept, that theme as like a Jacob's Ladder light, um, is you've ever seen the movie Sublime in 2007 with Tom Cavanaugh. It's a very similarly themed movie of a man goes into the hospital for a routine procedure um, and then he starts seeing visions of the doctors as demons and these other things going on and nurses taking patients away. And it starts to turn into this whole thing of, is this kind of a, a demonic hospital that's a gateway to something? Is he going insane? Is there something else at play? Like all of these other things you're trying to figure out. And I think that really did remind me of Jacob's Ladder. So I think if you end up liking this, I don't think it's on the same level, but if you're looking for something in that vein, it could scratch that itch for you. Yeah. It's a beautiful, disturbing, and I think a very unique movie. I mean, the the payoff and like the overall story, you may, maybe it's been told in like a different permutation elsewhere, maybe. Um, when I look at all of the parts put together, the stylistic choices, the 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 uniqueness to the demonic visions, and the way the film can transition from um, a very believable reality, like super believable, it can just warp right in front of you into a literal hellscape that is disturbing. It, it's it's almost like it never shits the bed by giving you too much. It gives you just enough to where I think your mind almost fills in the blanks. You know, you'll see a, a piece of a creature, but you're never seeing it clear enough and in a way that you can you can break it down. It's always like, is this bigger? Is this uh, is are is there more of this that I'm seeing? Especially like I feel like a lot of people might have seen a clip or two of this. There is a descent through a hospital with a certain character strapped to a gurney. And I feel like certain maybe music videos or somebody's taken little bits of that and shown it. Or maybe if you've watched like those 100 scariest moments or, or Eli yeah. Roth's history of horror, I'm sure people, when they watch this, if you've never seen it, you're going to see some moments. I mean, there's even some shit that I feel influenced, uh, like, the, the band tool what was in some of their music videos, there are similar movements and things like that. All the effects for this movie were done in camera. There's, there's no CGI. There's no opticals. It's all playing with um, film stock and, and running things in reverse and shooting them at different frames. And there's also a few standout sequences that I would love to 
touch on and explain, but it really would give away some of the movie. But I will say there's one shot of Jacob ends up running an extremely high fever, and Jesse is knocking on all the doors in the apartment building on their floor, begging everyone for ice. I need some ice right away. He's running 106 fever to emergency ice. Because the doctor said, if you don't ice him down in a bath, it's all over. And the masterful editing and the performance and everything connected to this one night of her trying to save Jacob's life, he ends up waking up the next day in this bath. And there's a shot of him that's so ethereal and so transcendent of him in this bathtub. And he's just staring at the camera. And two tears trickle down his eyes. And you know that that's just being a great actor and really crying on cue in this sequence. But really, like, I, I think Tim will agree, like, certain films are good and other films are good and they have, they have imagery or scenes that, like, stick with you forever or for a very long time. And that whole scene of him in that bathtub, like, I think at one point he screams like... It just yeah. really resonates and like it sticks with you. It's a great moment. Well, it's it's a number of things because the insanity of that scene, like the chaos of it as they're th everybody's coming in from other apartments and they're throwing the ice in and he's freaking out. And f it seems so chaotic and kind of scary because from his point of view, all of this is madness going on. But then also it's just all of this apartment building coming together quickly to try to save yeah. him as he's fighting against them. So it ends up making sense of all this. And the scene that you talked about directly following this of him laying in the bath with the tears trickling down his eyes. I really think it's a scene that taken out of context is big, but when you watch it in the context of the film and you understand kind of what comes around that, it's mm -hmm. kind of even more heartbreaking. Oh, for sure. It's a very human horror movie. But I think it is a horror film. And um, if anyone picks up the Blu-ray, it, it, it's never really been treated as well as I'd like it to be treated. There's no like special edition, you know, 4K release. But there is a pretty standard edition Blu-ray. I think it's only like 12 bucks or something on Amazon. Um, it's got a very insightful commentary from Adrian Lin. It's also got a, a pretty in-depth interview with the writer. And without spoiling anything... There are several deleted scenes that are really great scenes that change aspects of the film. And I could see why they cut them, but I'm super, super happy that you get to actually watch them because they kick ass in their own right. They just change the trajectory of some of the, the thrust of the movie here and there. So I'm like following that downer. I know Jacob's Ladder is kind of a, a bit of an emotional drain. Um, of a movie. What if we went? What if we went to the bottom of the ladder, though, Tim? And then there was another ladder, and we slid oh, down so, that ladder. So, like a sub ladder, like if you like Inception, but if you have a nightmare within a nightmare. Yeah, like if Jacob's ladder turned into Jack's slide, where it wasn't even a ladder with rungs, <laughs> and you just slid in into some really, really dark shit. Where would that lead us? I think that would lead us to Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built from 2018. I think it would. His family-friendly reflection on art. The old cathedrals often have sublime artworks hidden away in the darkest corners for only God to see. 
The same goes for murder. Oh, this juggernaut of what the fuck. This is a crazy one, man. This is a film that I had heard about for years as being a very intense film. Yes. And I finally watched it just because it's the don't touch the stove. It's hot. So you touch it. I figured. I hope you watched the unrated version. Originally, I didn't. Um, So I ended up finally watching it. And yeah, it deserves its accolades as being this very demented, dark mess um but there's an immediate disclaimer captivating (laughs) yes it is (laughs) before we start dismantling the plans that create the house that jack built this is super important for everyone listening to know the house that jack built truly does operate on three completely different levels director lars von trier he's he's a unique son of a bitch this guy but level one is that it is a a very disturbing but absolutely engaging uh story about a serial killer and his exploits over i think it's a 15 year span or 12 a 12 year span that is level one and this film can absolutely be enjoyed on that level then there is a level of subtext which i would have to consider a social commentary that plays on how much we as as human beings tend to ignore the fucked up things around us and and we we don't help when we can help and that comes into play in this film if you take both of those levels and combine them you could watch it as a serial killer film that also has a social commentary about how we're selfish then there is a third subtext that is way deeper that if you are a film nerd and you really want to go there it is actually most likely a metaphor for the career of Lars von Trier and i do believe that that third level of subtext does exist um but really we would need two episodes of don't open this podcast to just break down those three levels of this film so we're going to let you know about the other two. You can delve into that on your own. Um, but as it stands, we can talk about the house that Jack built on the surface because it is fucking good. So now we can get into that. Yeah. And as far as you saying that this the, the third part of the subtext, there yeah. are parts of the film where the subtext is just text. See, does he... It talks about the relationship between artist and art and the violence and these primal things that create art as he yeah. shows clips of his own movies um, yeah. of like Nymphomaniac and Antichrist and these other things. So it's one of those films that it's like some might describe it as pretentious. Um, right. <laughs> it might be true. But no, this also, is all like, really it, important. It is interesting. <laughs> like, yeah. To nutshell that third uh, subtext level thing. Basically, what the, that what that belief would state is that Jack the Killer, who's played by Matt Dillon, is Lars von Trier, the director. And each of his victims are essentially his movies. And there is a character named Verge that we're going to get to that Jack speaks with throughout the entire film. And in that level of subtext, Verge would be the fucking critics, those people that are always like stating shit about him. And that's kind of where that goes. So 
if that three sentence encapsulation, if that intrigues you, then just hit the internet and go down that rabbit hole and you could read, you know, exactly what character is supposed to be, what movie and all that kind of stuff. And we'll if leave that, that doesn't for, intrigue for you, guys. then maybe it'll intrigue you the concept of <laughs> what if we did um, like Dante's Inferno. So it, the whole movie seems very drawn from the imagery of like uh, Gustav Dory's The Inferno. Yes. But what if we did that in the vein of like Henry the Serial Killer or Portrait of a Serial Killer? It follows right. him. It follows his mindset. There's times where it's darkly humorous of him just bumbling, trying to talk his way into things and talk his way out of things while people are oblivious. And it's this constant thing of people are willing to put themselves in danger rather than be put into the uncomfortable situation of saying no or being more aggressive or all of these other things. So even if you take aside from the the Lars von Trier um, self-reflection angle and go more towards the idea of this is Dante's Inferno as we're watching the life of Jack as he's going through all of these various things on kind of this whole march, um, although not necessarily yeah. the the extent of Inferno. Um, I don't want to necessarily... <laughs> No, but but again, I mean, that that's what's so interesting and enthralling about the house that Jack built and how you could have a you, you, 10 people can watch it and you all could get together and talk each other into oblivion because on the surface, it is stuff you've seen. You know, you're meeting a guy who's a killer. And of course, he's uh, he's a failed architect and an engineer and he's got OCD and all those sorts of things that you would expect a serial killer to have. What I think is interesting is that he his earliest murders are so well planned and he's so organized. And as the killings progress, he gets sloppier and sloppier and his lies are so transparent and he's doing things that you never would want to like do if you were a serial killer, you know, like he drives around in in, like a red van, you know, it's like, that's an easy thing to pick out. You know, there's all these things. Um, But Lars von Trier is a, whether he's a pretentious asshole or a misogynist or a whatever, no one can deny that he is scholarly and he has a well, a, a very well-rounded knowledge of many things. And Tim will back me up that this script is has a lot of like forced dialogue, but it's still engaging. But it's like it feels like it's it doesn't feel natural. It feels like it's been carefully crafted. And presented uh, the same way I enjoy a Quentin Tarantino script, even though it's heightened, it's it's yeah. more talky and the people are throwing out more 25 cent words than they would in reality. You know, it's like hitmen that are waxing about, uh, you know, existential things and all that stuff. But I don't know, man, Von Trier, who I am not always a fan of, just like Darren Aronofsky, who I'm not always a fan of, I think this is my favorite Lars von Trier movie. Um, I enjoy it the most and I could watch it multiple times and pull different things from it. And this movie breaks down, like Tim mentioned earlier, the art and the artist. And, you know, they're referencing all different sorts of architecture and, you know, the brutalism movement and all these things that like, I don't know. It's like, it feels like it would alienate a lot of the audience and that's kind of when we were saying pretentious. Is he a prick who's doing this 
to, to Peacock and show how, like, I'm going to show you blood and gore and women getting their breasts removed and, you know, and, and killed, but I'm also so smart. That might be a major turnoff to people, but maybe he was doing it in such a way as to piss people off. So is it shock cinema? Is it uh, just a well-made movie? Is it garbage that we're perceiving as art? It's an interesting fucking movie. There's no movie like yeah. this movie at all. And hey, even if you don't like it, then it goes along with that third subtext that Mike was talking about of as it goes on, Lars von Trier's <laughs> career, much like the film, autobiographicals. Derails. Yeah. Well, I think um, I, something I had read from him uh, that he was saying that he used to craft films to try and make great movies. And then as he got older, he started getting bored of that and got more experimental. And he has wondered uh, out loud to people if his forays into more abstract cinema will be his eventual undoing. Will, will he lose his film career? You know, and obviously he's not, he's Lars von Trier. He, you know, he's like this Danish filmmaker, writer, screenwriter, whatever. He's, he's made a ton of movies that are acclaimed and a ton of movies that have pissed people off. We're going to rattle a couple off for you. The titles in case you want to look them up. Uh yeah, I mean, you might have heard of Antichrist if you're on more of the horror scene. Dogville, a very interesting... Well, I was about to say, like, Dogville, a very <laughs> interesting. interesting... I don't know. I've never watched it. I'm not a Lars von Trier guy. I just happen to really like the house that Jack built. But Dogville, I know, um, with Nicole Kidman, is yeah. this kind of mobster, mafia, crime thing of her running away from the mob. She ends up... It's shot very much like a stage play. And then the town that she hides out in ends up finding out why she's hiding out and then take advantage of her as blackmail um, because it's, well, the other option is you have to go back to the people that are chasing you. So it's a very polarizing, but like you said, it ends up going into the territory of he gets bored. So it's, what can I do that's different? How can I express right. myself differently on film? And that's when we end up with stuff like Antichrist going to that extreme that it did, Dogville on that more very yeah. kind of stage play-esque shoot nymphomaniac parts one and two where he splits this kind of odd sexual epic into two parts of a film and then you have the more yeah. normal stuff like but also he, he yeah he made dancer in the dark yeah uh, where bjork is is going blind and breaking the waves i think my guess is breaking the waves was probably his most critical success i, I think you know like across the board but truthfully I, I can't lie to you guys like you know we're kind of cash and carry wash and wear kind of guys and I think Tim and I both enjoy art house cinema and we can see the, the, the merits of it. I am, I am someone who oftentimes will put on a very out there art house movie, but it's more of um, a little vacation for me. Like I'll go and watch a film like that, like under the skin with Scarlett Johansson. I love that movie, but it, it's not something I recommend to a lot of people. And it's when I want to take a little break from the run of the mill and maybe I want to watch something that's a little pretentious, but also very lovingly crafted and, and, and very beautiful or, or hauntingly beautiful. It could be dark, but something like the house that Jack built, I feel like it bridges that gap in a really satisfying way for me, because I have played this movie for many different types of people. And half of those people I thought we're going to really hate this fucking movie. 
But I got to be honest, almost everyone that I've ever watched this with has really globbed on to something. There's like, there's something in it that's resonated with everybody. And most people really like it. Like all of my coworkers, they're, they're all very different people, but they all really dig house that Jack built. Like there's something about, I don't know, the arrogance of it and, and the, just the ghoulishness of it all. Um, I, and there is comedy. I think we're we're leaving that out. It's darkly comic. It's like a two hour and thirty five minute movie. It's yeah. a long haul, and elements of it are very episodic. Where it's like, it's giving you these moments where like you meet one of of his victims, and it's Uma Thurman, and, and like you're engaged because you're like that's Uma Thurman, but she's really only in it for a piece of the movie, and that's the end of her. Riley Kehoe's in it. And I think she's really good. She plays a character that he calls simple as an insult. He's always telling her how stupid she is. And uh, that's a murder sequence that's pretty disturbing. But we haven't even gotten to like the darker regions where there, there is child truly, murder. There, he yeah. doesn't hold back. There is some truly haunting imagery in this film in terms of some of the shots they linger on or some of the things that they show briefly as he's he gets into where he starts deciding that um, what he's doing is art. And if that's the case, he needs to position things and kind of like create this art. So all of the these bodies tableaus he starts, of dead yeah, people. creating these tableaus and then it's no, 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 no. I did this wrong. I need to do it again. So he needs to go get more bodies or he needs to go, go back to the body that he already froze and kind of reposition it. And it gets into all of these really kind of grisly things that it's, part darkly humorous, part kind of just ghoulish. But then also we have to wonder, we chose to sit down and watch this. So what does yeah. that really say? I guess <laughs> that's a, that's another little throwback connection to Henry portrait of a serial killer. You're also the voyeur you're, you're choosing to watch this. So how do you judge Lars if you're sitting there watching it? Yeah. I think that comes into play too. Especially we paid money to see it and he made money off it. That's so, true. But I got to hand one? it to him, Tim. The editing in this thing is beautiful. Uh, some of the imagery is just gloriously grotesque, but go like gorgeously shot. Uh, if anyone listening to this is a collector of very dark art, if you know the photographer Joel Peter Witkin, and if you don't know him, you could look up the name Joel Peter Wicken. This guy creates some of the most disturbing art, kind of utilizing real corpses and other things. Very disturbing. But you cannot deny that this gentleman, Joel Peter Wicken, is a master of his craft in terms of, of photography. And he creates images that are absolutely gorgeous, but they're fucking disturbing and warped. And the house that Jack built, to me, is very much a moving picture of a Joel Peter Wicken photo. It's disturbing, but it's also oddly uplifting in a weird way. I mean, because you're 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 seeing visuals that are gorgeous, and and you're watching a movie that is, in a weird way, like an epic journey. It's an epic journey of a man you oh, wouldn't want to be. Yeah. And you wouldn't want to know him, you know, especially later on when you talk about like the grotesque imagery, I think it goes to the tipping point of the grotesque stuff. And then it starts getting into some stuff that's truly like classical painting imagery 
that oh yeah they go out of their way to set up just these kind of still shots that are just the the slight movement going on for some scenes that they're just holding on it like it's just a living painting um that i think i would imagine that if if you watch this with an art history major they probably would pull i could only imagine the amount of intentional intellectual nods to certain moments throughout different eras of art history. I am positive they're in there. I picked up a few of them. There's a couple of paintings that rang very true where I'm like, oh, wow, he's recreating this painting of, you know, going across the river Styx and things like that. But I'm sure, like, if you watch it with an art history person, they'll be like, oh, this is this, and this is this, and this is taken from this, and but it's done in reverse, you know, to show the opposite side of it or whatever. Yeah, like, there's a lot of stuff in it that seems like like Bosch, or it seems like uh, John Martin, or any of these other ones. Like you said, there's some that are definitely kind of a, a direct comparison, but I think also it just seems like a lot of these classical depictions of hell or heaven or the end of days or all of these the pleasures of earth um i think it's the uh, bosch garden of earthly delights um it's Mm -hmm. all of those kinds of things and it also references tons of real serial killers i mean there's a lot of bundy in there you know there's there's definite pulls from real life killers um i think what we're saying is the house that jack built is probably the most highbrow but also still sleazy as fuck movie about a serial killer that you ever could watch. And it really does take a certain kind. I I guess if you're easily offended, just skip it. Like I I think there'll be something in it that'll turn your stomach. But if you kind of like to uh, push yourself in an endurance test, you might, you might really get a lot out of this movie because I, I liked it and I know Tim did as well. So how's the Jack built? Check out the unrated cut. It's the way to go. So I'm like, that was another downer. Should we, can we go lower? I, I don't know. If Should we, we talk go... about Ebola syndrome or, or martyrs? <laughs> like, where, where can we go from here? Well, the American a remake Syrian of martyrs? Film. That is a lower. Serbian film. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, yeah let, let's try to, I guess, I don't know, maybe brighten up isn't the word, considering the where this movie goes and <laughs> all the other back half of this. Um, but let's maybe get away from more of the hell worlds. Yeah. And we'll go into more of the dreamscapes now. What do we have coming up next? We're going to talk about Before I Wake from 2016, directed by Mike Flanagan. Good night, Cody. I don't like to sleep. But there's nothing for you to be scared of. Yes, there is. That little boy's dreams come true. So do his nightmares. Sometimes if I do this, it keeps him away. Something's not right. Cody, wake up. Wake up! Before I wake, rated PG-13. But people really would only be seeing this movie very recently, which is kind of unfortunate because it got held over and stuck in some developmental hell. They finished the movie in 2016, and then I think the production company went under that was putting it out. Uh, so it got shelved for several years. Uh, people that kind of think they know the name Mike Flanagan, you definitely know his name because, or you know his work. Uh, he made Dr. Sleep. He made uh, Oculus. He gave us uh, The Haunting of Hill House. Mm-hmm. Um, so many movies. Hush is awesome. Uh, Gerald's Game kicked ass. Midnight Mass. I know you like that, right? 
Oh yeah, down for that one. I also love. Yeah, I thought his sequel or well, I guess prequel, uh, Ouija Origin of Evil. I didn't care for the other Ouija movie. I think this one is very fun, Mike Flanagan. But yeah, I I don't think he's really had a miss in his career as far as any of the stuff. So it's one of the directors that I see his name and it's okay. You have my price of admission. I'll check it out. Which is why it's surprising I didn't watch this until we talked about it for the show. And it was, you know what? It's been on the list. Let's watch this now. I consider Mike Flanagan to be the guy who works as hard as James Wan, makes better movies, but no one knows the name Mike Flanagan the way they know James Wan. That's what I think of when I think of Mike Flanagan. Although he also has a Flanagan universe. A Flaniverse? A Flaniverse. But yeah, Before I Wake, uh, it was supposed. It was originally titled Somnia. Not insomnia, but somnia, which would mean sleep. And insomnia means not being able to sleep. I think I kind of like somnia as a better title, but Before I Wake works. I mean, it's all right. Yeah, I think Before I Wake kind of elicits more of a, um, like the, if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul. Like, it leads me more in a, I guess, I don't know. Religious. I, I don't direction. like this title as much because of what you just said. It because the movie isn't religious, but yeah. when I hear "Before I Wake," I immediately think of oh, what is it like a you know a possession you know Catholic Church demon kind of thing, and it isn't. Yeah. Um, we said we we're going to lighten it up. This one's about an orphan child. Wow, how how much lighter? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's an lighter orphan child who's killed in the foster kid. system after his mother dies. He gets sent with another family. The Foster father tries to kill him, and then he ends up having to go to a new home, um, and he has night terrors. So it doesn't sound brighter, but in comparison to the two we just got off of, yeah, yeah. I think this is a lighthearted film compared. Yeah. Um, the way I was talking about Adrian Lynn having a, a grounding in like these romance sort of uh, films, Mike Flanagan, he has his own staples. And I think Mike Flanagan really, really, really cares about family dynamic and drama between, um, you know, family members and emotions. And he always writes in a very uh, engaging way. It's always like, I feel like with him, character comes first and then like anything supernatural comes second. And I've come to expect that, therefore I'm not let down. You know, it, it isn't like a in-your-face, none of his movies are like in-your-face, you know, paranormal stuff. It's always, here's the people, care about the people, and now some weird shit is yeah. going to happen to those people. And that's not a bad way to be. I'm, I'm cool with that. Oh, yeah. I, I think it, he does a great job, like here and other films, of you have to add weight so when the supernatural stuff happens... I care about the person that is getting chased or terrorized because otherwise it's just, it's a Friday the 13th film that I love, but yeah, it just ends up being, Oh, you're a body, you're a body. Um, I don't care if what your name is because you're just a guy with headphones or you're just the right. guy with cut off tank top. Like in this, at least it's all of the characters, whether you love them, whether you hate them. I know um, Thomas Jane is the father. I liked a lot in this film. Kate Bosworth, I thought she did a great job, but her character I didn't care for in the film Mm because there's so many points where you're kind of, you understand where she's coming from of the two of them taking over as the foster parents for the the young child, uh, Cody, paid by Jacob Tremblay. Tim gave you the the setup, but he actually said it so fast that you might have missed it. The, The orphan has gone through a few foster families and then he ends up 
this is the family that that takes up the brunt of the entire film and that is Thomas Jane and Kate Bosworth. So they're they're his newest adopted family and they're the ones it's it's a trio of characters and that's the trio. So by the way, the actor, the kid actor, his name's Jacob Tremblay and I cannot every time I read his name all I think of is Ethan Tremblay who's the the Zach Galifianakis character from Due Date and it makes me laugh every time. But I digress. <laughs> that's got nothing to do with the movie. Yeah, for anybody unfamiliar with him, I know he's been in a number of things, but you might remember him as the Little League kid in Dr. Sleep, one of Flanagan's other films. Uh, the one who Terrifying sequence. Oh, yeah. That kid can scream. It was so disturbing in that movie. He did a really good job. And I think he continues to do a really good job here. I think it's very I easy. I agree with you. Oh, I was because I think it's very easy, and I know we've talked about kid actors before, for a kid actor to end up giving a performance that drags down the end total of a film. And I think he does a great job where he's adding to it and not subtracting from it of, oh, we have an adequate child actor. You say your lines, you hit your mark. Okay, great. Let's get back to the adults. I think he does a good job of, we care about Cody. We want to make sure that Cody's doing well throughout the film, even though all of these things are happening to him and because of him in a sense. Yeah. Because Kate Bosworth and Thomas Jane... They had a son who uh, tragically drowned, and then they found out uh, through the the doctor that she can no longer have kids, so they can't have kids. Uh, so they're they're damaged, and uh, so is Cody. So there's that dynamic of all three people have their their problems, and I agree with Tim that I think Thomas Jane gives a killer performance. And I think Kate Bosworth gives an equally killer performance. I just think the writing for Thomas Jane is better than the writing for Kate Bosworth. So I can't really dock her for points. It's more so I don't think the script fleshes her out in a way, writes her in a way that I wanted them to. Yeah, because I mean, I think the way it writes her, it makes Thomas Jane likable. And it makes her likable too. But the actions she does and the things she does almost seems, well, not almost, she takes advantage of Cody because we haven't discussed. So Cody, early on in the film, we find out, uh, you might see it in trailers and things of these kind of ethereal butterflies um, floating through the, the house. It's because when he falls asleep, when he dreams, those dreams come to life or these dreams kind of enter our world. And it's- Yeah, they case- manifest themselves almost in a holographic way. Yeah. That's like the best way I could. There, It isn't like- if he dreams that he's in the mountains, that the whole world around him becomes mountains. It would basically be like the house, like the direct area right around him. It isn't like he has the power to spread this everywhere. It's a very localized phenomena. Um, It's not like the lathe of heaven where all of a sudden he has like effective dreams. Um, But I think it's important because, you know, they keep it small. Like it's a very small thing, which so he ends up having this power that he's manifesting these things. And because the parents end up finding out, he ends up seeing a picture of their child who passed away. So he gives them kind of a glimpse accidentally because he's thinking about it. And then that's when while she he's, kind of while lashes he's on. Yeah. Yeah. He, he ends up dreaming about their son. And all of a sudden, you can imagine these two parents who lost their child. They're sitting there watching TV. And all of a sudden, a, a, a vision of their child comes like walking into the room and it's kind of cool because you know he's never heard the kid talk so the child the the vision of their child doesn't speak because he has no voice like like the kid doesn't know how to dream a voice 
for this kid. So yeah. the first time I think is just a, a momentary, maybe a hug or something like that. And then the kid kind of vaporizes when Cody wakes up. Like he, it's not bloody or anything. It's just like, he turns to like, like glitter, like just sort of like disappears. Yeah, like Sandman into the sand. Room. He gets dusted. But that kind of sets up the rest of us, which as we said, kind of going back to the discussion on Kate Bosworth's character, Thomas Jane thinks it's amazing, but accepts it as Cody is in our care. Cody is our child. We have to do what's who best we for should him take, care, take of. care of him. Yeah, like yeah. this is our reality. That's great, but this is our reality in our family. But she takes it as the opportunity of we can finally get back the child we lost, but it in effect ends up taking advantage of Cody and kind of not keeping his best interest in right. mind. So she does a great job. And I think the writing is good for the characters. I think it's just yeah. in itself, the character, we have to understand, yes, she's going through this trauma, but it doesn't mean that we have to like what she's doing, but we can understand. Yeah, she doesn't do, she doesn't do any of these things out of malice. She does it because she is thinking with grief. Like it's through the filter of grief. And I think Thomas Jane has accepted, he doesn't enjoy the acceptance, but he's accepted that his son's gone. So he's seeing his wife. It's almost like a drug, you know, where he, she got a little taste of this like dream crack and in now her brain <laughs> through the, the, the filter of grief is, is not wanting to accept. Let's say she accepted the death 20%. This little dream moment now knocked her back to like 0%. Like, I'm not accepting that he's gone. I know he is, but I'm not accepting it. So she starts showing the kid like videos of, of her son talking and talks to him about the little Eskimo kiss thing that they would do. And she fucking knows, like she knows in the back of her mind, yeah. this kid wants us to love him. So he's going to dream this for me. And that starts creating a very believable tension between the mother and father, because the dad sees where this is going. He's like, this is not, you're just going to keep feeding this kid information, but it's never going to bring our son back. And as we mentioned in the beginning of this episode, dreams and nightmares sort of go hand in hand. Now, if you're a traumatized kid, we already get early on in the movie that this poor guy is living like Nancy from from Nightmare on Elm Street. He's chugging <laughs> energy drinks. You know, he hides like caffeine and he's doing everything he can not to sleep because he gets plagued by this recurrent nightmare of this thing that he calls the canker man. The canker man. And apparently when the canker man manifests into a physical form, it wants to fucking consume and eat and screw shit up. And it has been killing the previous people that he's been staying with. So again, sounds like a spoiler, but it really isn't because you get it really early on and we're not telling you what the outcome is going to be with this family, but you have a little kid who's actually quite a hero because he's trying to protect the people around him. And that's why he's jacking himself up on caffeine. But meanwhile, you got the mom who's just wanting this little dude to go to sleep. So it's a really, I think it's a very interesting cool play on the dynamic of of dreams becoming reality it it yeah. makes it it makes it really different feeling even though it's not the most unique idea of a dream coming to reality i mean it's been done but it hasn't really been done in this interesting way of like a little vagabond uh orphan kid whose foster parents keep getting killed by by a a, 
a manifestation of his nightmares. Yeah. Kind of cool. So I was down. I was along for the ride. Yeah. I think absolutely if you're a fan of Flanagan, you probably already saw it or it's been on your list. Um, if not, I think even if you're not into all the rest of his like Netflix um, shows and all of those that he's been doing, I think this one is similar enough and yet different enough from the normal fare you could come to expect from him that it's this great kind of almost dark fantasy um, film. It goes into horror, but it's leaning kind of, it reminds me almost like a paper house. Um, yeah. Of kind of the, which the was on our short of, list. Yeah. Which like the, the magic of dreams that can get twisted depending on your emotions and your psyche and how things can twist in kind of the, the dream world. But yeah, we'll, we'll get to that one at some point. Cause that's one of my favorites, but I think absolutely before I wake, I, I'm glad I finally ended up sitting down and watching it because it's that great. It's a solid entry in his overall film lineage. I mean, it's I don't know if it's him batting at, you know, a hundred, but I like it more than some of his other uh, films. I I think it I think it has a bit of a hard time in points, not knowing where to balance the horror and the wonder. It's PG-13. So it can't go too far in, into like horror territory, but I think it actually goes pretty far. Now, there's a few sequences that I think are pretty harrowing. I would probably scare the shit out of a young kid because you're dealing with a young kid who's dreaming. Yeah. So if, if anything is going to incite nightmares in your kid, you might want to watch Before I Wake before you watch it with them, even though it's PG-13. And I do have a problem with a few aspects of the ending, um, which we're not going to get into, but... I feel that there's uh, a couple of characters that deserved sort of a, a tie-up and they don't really go into what transpired afterward with those characters or where they ended up. But all in all, it's it's a solid watch. And I think anyone, anyone who's into dream stuff will dig it. It's cool. So I think before I wake, we've kind of gotten through all those very dark, heavy hitters. We've gotten through the dreamy nightmare before I wakes. Uh, now it's time to go into <laughs> full out kind of like Jodorowsky style psychedelic madness. Um, this one, I don't think yeah. directly has necessarily those dreams or those hellscapes or things like, or the, the hell worlds. But I think the entire film feels like a dream. Um, between the imagery, the music, the feel, it just kind of floats out there in that weird 1 to 3 a.m. spot. And you can take this thing and spray paint it onto the side of a van um, if you wanted to. And that movie is what, Mike? That is Mandy from 2018, directed by Panos Cosmatos. Under the crimson primordial sky, the wretched warlock reached into the dark embrace. I need you to get me that girl I saw. Do you know what to do? You're a special one, Mandy. I, too, am a special one. Let us be so very special together. It's 
So what you gonna do with that thing? I'm going hunting. So what you hunting? It's crazy evil. I think I said that correctly. I'm just gonna say this right now. I love Mandy. I watched Mandy once and I liked it. And I watched it a second time, maybe a year later. I was like, you know, that's a that's a really good movie, that Mandy. I, I like that movie. And I revisited it again. I've played it for some clients here and there, you know, so I've listened to it. But I, I gave it a a by myself 1.30 in the morning rewatch a few days ago. <laughs> and I can now say that I love Mandy. Like, from liking it to liking it a little more to loving it. Um, it is... It is a fucking trip. Like, it's a trip. And I don't even know where to begin because every movie we've covered, with the exception maybe of Before I Wake, all the other movies have been like pretty heavy, if that's the correct term, like a heavy movie. But Mandy is just, it's just this like Dungeons and Dragons crossed with stoner metal, like the fuzziest Black Sabbath, slowest riff. Like, I don't think heavy has to mean fast. Heavy can mean slow. And and when you think of, like, the heaviest riff, you know, in, in metal history, it isn't, like, fast noodling solo. It's just a slow building, like, in-your-face heaviness. And this this movie, man, ah, you, you, gotta, you gotta cut in and say some stuff right now or I'll just start like rattling off all of the different points I wanted to make about Mandy. So, so talk to me about Mandy, Tim, so that we could talk together about it. So this movie really has the feel like first we should probably just mention, we always gloss the plot. So we always do this. So Nicholas Cage's character and Andrea Riseborough, um, Red and Mandy. So they're, kind of just leading their life. It's kind of like, uh, when you have like Pacific um, Northwest, yeah, it's very like the the comics with Wolverine where he's just living with his wife um, in like the 80s and all of a sudden, oh, somebody comes back and gets killed and it turns into this revenge thing. It's pretty much the same thing here. It's not necessarily treading new ground with that concept, but the way it does it is definitely unique. So this cult ends up coming for her and that kicks off this kind of like death wish if it was made by the visual mind of like Frank Frazetta turned into this whole thing. It's like if heavy metal and Spina Knight turned into a mixed live action, um, like neon Dungeons and Dragons film, like you said. But it's the way it's presented. I mean, it's, it's 1983 in the Pacific Northwest and Red and Mandy just live this, this very truthful, pure, simple life. They live in this crazy house that had to be an intentional uh, creation because it, it's it doesn't look like a normal house. Um, it's in the middle of the woods. It's primarily glass. Like so much of it, you can see into the house. Um, I don't know if that's a metaphor for for them being very uh, transparent and and like truthful to one another. And it takes its time. I mean, it's there's these establishing sequences of the two of them together. They're talking about cosmic shit. She's into art and she draws a lot. And there's, there's scenes of them like laying in bed, talking about what your favorite planet is. And and like, you could see that Nicolas Cage is just, he's so enamored of his wife. Like he, he just hangs on her every word. He just thinks she's awesome. And she's this ethereal, artsy, cool chick, 
You know, she's like wearing a Motley Crue shirt and they're just hanging out together, talking about stuff. They fall asleep in this glass walled bedroom that's like right in the middle of the woods. So you like you just you look up and you see this sky that is just covered in like an Aurora Borealis. You know, there's elements that ground it where he's coming home from work. Uh, he works out with like cutting trees down and shit. And you hear them talking about Reagan on the radio. So at first I was like, okay, this is sort of rooted in, in like 1983, like my world, like the world I live in. But then when you see these sky shots and you see the lighting and everything, it makes you think that this is like an alternate version of our, our earth. It's 1983, but it's not the 1983 you lived in. If you were alive, then it's a different 1983. And that's when, you know, you're getting to know their simple existence. And Tim had mentioned a cult. There's the, the children of the new dawn is this cult led by this fucking psycho named Jeremiah. And he's got a, a ragtag group of weirdos. Uh, Linus Roach plays him and he plays him to perfection. And he's sort of like the physical manifestation of all that is wrong with like, I guess the male ego kind of thing. It isn't really, they don't center on that, but he's someone that he wants something and he gets it. And it's kind of, they connect him in a lot of ways to like Jim Jones or Hitler or any of those people that are failed artists that then become somebody who wants to control others because they establish that he once was a musician and he thinks that his album was like the best thing ever, but the assholes in his words that ran the, these uh, recording places, the the record companies, they didn't see the genius of his stuff. So they established this guy as like a failed artist. It's very, and he Manson. just decides he is very Mansony. He decides when he sees Mandy walking on the street, he wants her. He de- he demands her and he deserves her. So he has his cult guys go out and take her. And everything in the movie is very slow and very brightly colored up until that moment when they take her. And that's where the psychedelic stuff starts happening. They trip her out on acid and some other weird shit that you don't understand. It's like a fucking insect that they pull out of a jar and they call it the cherry on the top and they like zap her with this bug and she goes into this crazy trip. But basically he, um, he demands her uh, subordinate, like he wants her to be one of his harem. And instead of accepting him in a moment of him showing his true weakness, he, he basically lets his guard down. He physically drops his robes and he's naked And he's in this room with all these other people that are tripping. And he tells Mandy, like, you're mine. I want you. And you're going to have sex with me. And it seems like she's going to, like, do whatever he says. But instead, she just laughs at him (laughs) and, and humiliates him by laughing at him. And that is when they murder her in a very dark, disturbing way. And the whole movie just fucking switches and now it's like a revenge movie now it's red seeking revenge for the death of mandy (laughs) and the movie gets really really out there oh yeah i know we didn't include in hellraiser in this episode but when i mentioned at the top of the show that we do have kind of like a, a cenobites type thing that's where these come into play they're this weird kind of 
leather-clad, demonic sort of thing that gets summoned that then goes out doing um, their bidding. And this is one of the groups that Red ends up kind of getting revenge on and hunting down and going after these guys in all sorts of things from like crossbow yeah. fights to fist fights to chainsaw duels. It, it ends up turning into this almost like synthwave Mad Max in the back end of yeah. this whole thing. Yeah. And there's also a shit ton of, of Catholic symbolism in it. I, I mean, everything about it, these, uh, these black riders, you know, I took them as, as the four horsemen of the apocalypse because there's four of oh, them. Oh, I can see that. And, and they're riding, they're riding like um, four wheelers and and uh, and motorcycles, which could stand in as as steeds. And I thought it was really interesting that they're they have things that make them each unique, but they're all shot in in such a way that they almost appear as black voids. Like you know that one of them has like a bunch of spikes jammed in them, and another one seems to have like a glimmering white face. But it's it's so dark on purpose that like they almost become like a, a, an entity and not a thing. But I, I feel like they're a stand in for like the four horsemen, just because like at one point, Jeremiah, he like stabs Nicolas Cage right where Jesus got stabbed. And he actually says to him, like, uh, you know what Jesus's big mistake was, huh? He didn't offer up a sacrifice in a stab. The cruciform is a constant reminder of that. So it's almost like Jeremiah sees himself as another, a new coming of the Messiah that's actually smarter and better than Jesus Christ was. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it. I mean, he chooses actually, music to play that's the carpenter's. And he's and then he's saying my music's better. I mean, Jesus was a carpenter. I, I don't know. I just see a lot of like Jesus and and biblical stuff going on well, in this. Also, doesn't Brother Swan when um Jeremiah tells him to summon like the the riders or whatever, he plays it was like an ocarina or he plays like some sort of yeah instrument to signal them, which is kind of like the the trumpet end of days. The trumpet, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, look. Panos went off the wall here. Like he made something that you can't, it's like a lava lamp, you know, crossed with hell. It's, I, <laughs> try and explain Mandy. Like it's, it's such a labored pace for, for it would even be considered slow by, by some people's standards for the first act, you know? And then once it becomes a revenge story, it's, there's so many stylistic changes. Like, Everything in the movie is bathed in this like um this sort of like Mario Bava um Italian horror kind of lighting where you're you're watching people that are like glowing in this magenta light and pink lighting and and, and blues and everything changes when when red comes to his senses and realizes he's alive and they killed Mandy and it all clicks and he realizes it I guess he's like a recovered alcoholic because there's a sequence that really is the film narrative turning on a dime stylistically as well. He goes into his bathroom, he flicks the light on, and for the first time, you see a brightly lit room. 
that just looks like a regular fucking room. It's a bathroom. And he goes under the uh, the sink and he rustles around and he pulls out like a bottle of vodka, a big bottle, and he's just slamming this bottle of vodka and he's intermittently, he's doing his cage deal, but he's doing it well. He's crying and he's screaming and he's going back and forth between being sad and crying that Mandy's dead, but then being like pumping himself up and being angry and going on the mission. And he he forges his own weapon, uh, as Tim had mentioned, this crazy like Dungeons and Dragons axe sword thing. And he goes out. Oh, he actually runs into Mac from from fucking Predator. Little Duke. Uh, who yeah, who hooks him up with with a few other weapons. And he goes out hunting these people down. That's the rest of the movie is the hunt. But it's never what you expect. Like the movie. It's just this this oscillating, like, cinematic acid trip that goes from, like, kind of heartfelt and emotional and believable, and then within the same scene, it becomes surreal. And then in the next moment, it becomes so excessive that you're just like, what the fuck? What is he making? And it never stops. It's just constantly this rotating mind scramble of a movie. And that's where, as I was saying earlier, I always liked it. But this time around, like, I don't know, the, the waves of, of psychosis that are Mandy, they all washed over me in the right way and they like anointed me you know like i i i felt like i watched it this time and and i was i was brought in to the church of mandy you know and, you and, uh, as brother and, mike <laughs> yeah exactly um because it's just it's fucking nuts it, i think it's the work of of a modern day argento which is a nice feeling because it really it throws its cards down and it commits to them you know, there's a lot yeah. of scenes, Tim, towards the end of the movie where you could have gone a much more, um, I guess, crowd-pleasing route. Like, like, I didn't feel like he was trying to make a classic. He was trying to make his own thing, but I think it's going to resonate over the years with more and more people as yeah. a classic. It's like a really cool movie. I mean, we didn't talk about the tiger. You know, it's like he's wearing this tiger shirt. And there's a sequence towards the end of the movie where there's a, a gigantic tiger in a cage and the tiger gets out of the cage and doesn't attack him. It just sort of like locks eyes with him. And it's almost like, wait, what the fuck's going on? Like, is this is is he is he the tiger? Like, like, you never yeah. know. There's a chemist in it played by Richard Brake. Richard Brake's awesome. I don't understand what his character is to the to the film. He seems to feel bad. He seems to understand what a shitty hand like Red's been dealt. So it's not like he's evil. I don't really know where he factors in. Yeah, like I think he was making the the drugs for the cult. And then once he kind of yeah. became aware of like what happened and everything, he understands like, yep, this is not good. Yep, I use the test my drugs on the tiger just to see if he chills out and calms down. And yeah. That's not right. Things should be free. And he lets the tiger loose. And like, I, I get it. And it's great seeing Richard break. Um, but yeah, like it's kooky. Like, I don't get what, I mean, it's a cool scene, but I don't necessarily understand why that scene is in there. Yeah. I want to understand it, but I'm happy with not being sure. 
you know, and it is one of those things where we love certain filmmakers for what they bring to the art of cinema that makes it different. And just like you and I love Argento movies and Fulci movies, they both bring a visual experience to film. And they're not that concerned with narrative. There is a narrative in their movies, but it isn't the paramount importance. And we love those directors. And I think Panos is part of that tradition of directors like that. I mean, you would even brought up Jodorowsky and you know other people that make these, these crazy tripped out movies. I think it's kind of cool that someone like him is working right now making films like this. Um, I'm really excited to see what he has in the pipeline for the future, because you and I both really like the viewing, which was his contribution oh, yeah. to Cabinet of Curiosities. This is great. And you really love his older film. I, I have to go back and watch that oh, again. Beyond, the Black, Beyond the Black Rainbow. Yeah. yeah. Which, now seeing that he was on Cabinet of Curiosities, I'm hoping we see more, either like a season two of that, and then have him come back for another story, because I would love to see the him and Guillermo kind of continue that relationship over time of giving him a spotlight to show off work. But also yeah. I would just love to see the two of them work together on something. Cause I think his outrageous kind of cosmic psychedelic sensibility with the fantastic sure. element of Remo could turn into something very cool, very quickly. Um, but we oddly see. enough, Tim, there is a complete dumpster fire of a remake of Jacob's ladder came out a couple of years ago. It is a literal dumpster I think fire. Michael I Haley? watched 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, it's so bad. Man, they they screwed up by not they they could have tapped Panos and been like, "Hey, can you make a different but cool new adaptation of Jacob's yeah. Ladder?" He would have been like, "Give me that shit. Give me the reins and let me run with it, you know?" I think that would have been cool. And um, then he just re-releases the 1991 yeah, what, with a magenta filter. <laughs> <laughs> but what's uh what's your overall on Mandy? Like, I mean, Am, am I uh, am I on my own here, or did, oh, no. did, it, did it kind I, I of think, like? I think you're not off base at all. Like Mandy is one that I had heard about and it got hyped up for a while, just because of the whole like everybody on that Nicolas Cage train. Which I love Nicolas Cage. I don't know if everybody out there that hypes these movies up is actually a fan of Nicolas Cage, or they're a fan of that concept of Nicolas Cage that they're yeah. liking ironically. But I genuinely just I also, love his stuff. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I'm glad we're touching on Nicolas Cage because um, he's a man that can act. And he has been in some great, great, great films early in his career. I mean, he was Sailor from, from fucking Wild at Heart. You know, oh, yeah. he was in Valley Girl. Like, he, he's an excellent actor. It, for people that don't realize it, there was a period of his life where he was buying way more than he had money to buy and put himself like into debt and a whole bunch of crap. And he did what, what many other actors have done. He just went and accepted every job and he made a living. He had to be had to, to make a freaking living. And he's been in a, in a whole bunch of garbage. Like there, there's a period in the middle, you know, of his career that yeah. it's stuff not worth watching. The sort of cage resurgence. Sometimes I, I get sad when I think that, he's sort of pigeonholed in a way where he's in the Christopher Walken situation of people hire him wanting the Nicolas Cage crazy. And I can almost see that sometimes he might not want to do it, but they're making him do it. You know, it's like 
you're getting these jobs, don't complain. But then you watch a movie like like Color Out of Space where they're they're wanting Cage on 11 and he's delivering. And then a movie like Mom and Dad, we want Cage on 11 and he delivers. Then you fucking watch Pig, which is Cage on 11, but a totally different level of 11. Yeah. Nothing crazy, nothing over the top, just pure like serious acting and he's really great in pig. So it shows you that like, he isn't just this wacky, like give me Jim Carrey crazy. He's, he's a very talented actor who's just kind of gotten himself into a weird scenario where the legend is almost taken over the person of like what people want cage to be. Yeah. Which I think ends up, he's able to kind of be in on the Joker, kind of laugh at himself and take advantage of that. Because that's the persona that he's his created bread and from there yeah. that people like want from his films. That's what allows something like the unbearable weight of massive talent to happen. Um, right. Because the, that's the plot line is just he's normal cage, but they all expect this crazy cage. Yeah. And then it ends up being the we get to see a glimpse of like, OK, but what is he versus what do we think he is? Um, right. So I think and see, I'm like glad... someone like someone like Tom Cruise could never be that humble. You'd never see Tom Cruise being able to do that, you know? Yeah, I think it's he will do comedy, but I don't think he would do a not necessarily a self parody, but he won't do something that is more reflection on himself and his own persona. He'll do like Tropic right. Thunder, where he'll do a ridiculous character. Oh, yeah, because that's empty. Yeah, yeah, it's just silly comedy. Yeah, yeah, but like, he would never. He, he would never play. Yeah, he would never play a guy who rose to to prominence in Scientology and is completely detached from you know having any flaws. He wouldn't play that character. But Cage would play anything. You know, he would play a guy who overspent and got himself in debt and had to sell shit. He would play that because he doesn't fucking care. Like I think yeah. he literally is. He probably would be a really fun guy to really meet. I I, I like to think that, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna file that away. And if I ever meet him, I hope he's great. That would make me very happy. But he was great in Mandy. And yeah, and just to put a button on Mandy, I have to say between like you said, Pig, between Mandy, unbearable weight of massive talent, he's gonna be in the the new Renfield movie. I love that we've finally gotten to a point that all the people who are fans of Nicolas Cage are now either making movies or we're being able to see him do these films again, that he's be able to be a bit sure. more selective. Sure. There's going to be other kind of stuff that's out there that like the, yep, just write me a check. Cause we're going to pay bills kind yeah, of, of course. Um, projects. But now he's at least able to choose things of, okay, cool. He's going to be on the big screen consistently on some of these and still do all of the fun projects like a Mandy or color out of space where yeah, it's not yeah. necessarily getting the, oh, it's nationwide, it's going to be on every theater screen, but he can do more of those fun projects that interest him rather than, I need a paycheck. It's, this is a cool script, or this is something that I want to act mm-hmm. in. On a totally different Cage note, you saw the trailers for Renfield, right? Yeah. Did did you ever notice that like him as Dracula, that he actually looks very similar to Christopher Lee? I never saw that I kind of that. like, yeah, it was sort of weird. I, I saw the the trailer again, like a newer trailer. I was like, damn it. He kind of looks a little bit like classic Christopher Lee with just a slightly different fang pattern. But yeah, I'll, I'll check that movie out. Um, it looks like a fun time. 
Yeah, it looks like it'll be fun. And I think it's it's interesting watching the trailer because some of the, the shots and some of the scenes of Dracula, it's like if you change the lighting and you change the music and whatnot, he could be a horror Dracula as opposed to this kind of yeah. like horror comedy uh, situation. I was kind of bummed out when I first saw the trailer, like, because it, it's... I don't know, man. Like, you know, the whole horror comedy thing, it's hard to do right. Oftentimes it's just sort of forgettable. And I kind of have a feeling this might be forgettable. Who knows? It it could be way more than that, but I, I don't think it's going to be. But yeah, he could play a serious Dracula. I yeah. think he should. Uh, I'd like to see him start taking, you know, a few more roles a year that are like straight either drama or a serious horror thing or, you know, a serious bad guy and not so like over the top. Because he really doesn't need to do that anymore, like just for for money. So, so Mandy, go watch it. Um, as we talk about this next film, that is a winner, Michael. That is, it is nineteen seventy seven. Michael winner, The Sentinel. There must forever be a guardian of the gate from hell. No evil thing approaches or There is danger. <laughs> Welcome From the shocking best-selling novel, The Sentinel, rated R. Love this movie. You showed me this movie years ago. I think, oh. I want to say this wasn't one of the the infamous box movies, um, but I think this was um, just around the time where I was moving up to Massachusetts, and I think we were talking and you had mentioned The Sentinel, and I said, oh, like, I think it might have... St- spun off of us talking about like the beyond or something only because very similarly it's the idea of kind of that the gateway so this gets more back into like our hell worlds although this doesn't necessarily hellscapes yeah like this doesn't necessarily show us the beyond it doesn't get into necessarily the the hellscape itself but it's introducing us to the concept of like what if there was a gate of where things bleed over into our side yeah um and that is where we end up with the the Sentinel. That's very reminiscent of like a Rosemary's Baby. Um, yeah, kind that's of what idea. I was going to interject. This is 1977. So we're talking post Rosemary's Baby and, uh, you know, Exorcist, that sort of thing. I think there was a push around this time for what could only be called prestige horror, where you would get a big studio name and big directors and a cast of big actors. And they would try to make like a prestige horror film. And when you watch the Sentinel, it opens, there's some parallels. It, it opens in, uh, I think Northern Italy uh, and, and you're inside of a Vatican kind of thing, you know, with a bunch of priests. And then it kind of jumps over to modern day New York city, which is very similar to like, the Iraq opening, you know, with Max von Sydow in The Exorcist, and then you go to, like, Georgetown. It has that. And then, because it's an apartment building that that is populated with extremely eccentric people, uh, several of which are old people, most of which are actually old people, um, I think there's an immediate connection that people will make to Rosemary's Baby. But other than those initial things i i do think the sentinel is very much its own thing um what's really funny to me is that 
Michael Winner, who's probably most famous for directing uh, Death Wish 1 and 2 and a bunch of other things he made. He made Scream for Help, which is one of my favorite uh, super tacky, like, 80s home invasion movies. Uh, If anyone wants to laugh their asses off, check out Scream for Help. But he had a really good working relationship with um, Charles Bronson, did a ton of movies with him. But here's the thing. The Sentinel is not prestige horror. It has elements of prestige horror, but it's also a super sleazy grindhouse fucking romp. And that's what I love about this movie. It's two different like tones that just clash like so badly, but so greatly in such a good way. What's the setup, buddy? So yeah, so we end up having a um a model played by Christina Raines playing Allison, who ends up moving into this, as you said, the apartment building, um, where she ends up getting slowly introduced to all of these other characters, uh, initially Burgess Meredith, which I love. Other than the Twilight Zone, I always think of Burgess Meredith as like Mickey and Rocky. That it's great and being the able penguin. to see him. Oh, true. Yeah, actually, yeah, Penguin. Yeah. Um, so it's fun being able to Clash see him of the Titans. doing the that shift of a role of the a kindly old man throughout the film. As she goes on, she ends up um, kind of meeting all the rest of the people in this building. And then she starts having all of these other kind of not necessarily visions, but there's all of these odd eccentric people throughout the house um, between the Beverly D'Angelo um, and I think it's her mother or her sister or something like that. So Sylvia Miles, they're, yeah. they're the lesbian couple that's how they're presented by Burgess Meredith. And there's a, there's a lot of age difference between them. Sylvia Miles um, was very famous. This is a little bit later in her career, but she was the uh, the fortune teller in Toby Hooper's Funhouse. The, the cast is stacked with, with people. The lead character, Christina, she has a, a long-term boyfriend who is played by Chris Sarandon, Jerry Dandridge from Fright Night. That's kind of an awesome casting. He's in Child's Play as well. They've been going together pretty serious, but she wants to get out on her own a little. She said she hasn't been on her own in forever. Um, she has like an estranged relationship with her family. And and Chris Sarandon was sort of like her, her rock, but she feels a little stifled. That's what leads her to go off on her own. He doesn't want her to go, but he's sort of like, he's cool with it. See, you know, he wants to see where things head. He doesn't want to push her too far. So you can imagine that when weird stuff starts happening, you know, Sarandon is sort of like, you should come back home, but she doesn't want to because it's this great apartment. John Carradine plays a very old blind priest who lives on the top floor and just sits in a window out looking, uh, uh, like looking out into the city skyline, which is kind of weird since he's blind. You know, she, she questions that to the realtor when she's getting the place. And yeah, things start to build. I think a main narrative push is that she ends up finding out that her father, who was quite abusive, uh, has died. That that's, that's something major that occurs. And she starts seeing visions in the house of her dad, as well as some other weird things. And then things get a little bit more strange when it comes to like the people that live there because at one point she brings it up to the landlord and the landlord seems unaware that other people are living there. Again, we're getting into like spoiler territory. So I'm trying not to give you why or if that's the case or not. Um, things get stranger. 
Yeah, because the realtor is kind of like surprised of, oh, there there must be squatters then in the building. The people you're talking about, yeah. I don't know who they are. Um, and there's a lot of situations like they're they're having a tea party, like a birthday party for Burgess Meredith's cat. And she goes to the party. And then when she takes uh, her, her boyfriend, is his name Michael? Yeah, Michael Lerman. So she takes Michael over to the, you know, to show him the room and there's no party stuff there. So little by little, the film starts taking on the the old uh, is she crazy, is she not kind of thing where the people surrounding her are really starting to wonder if maybe she's having a bit of a nervous breakdown, that kind of thing. Um, but things get worse and then they get worse and then they get even worse. Which and I think when I mentioned before of this reminds me of Rosemary's Baby, well, it, I like Rosemary's Baby needs to be on, but like it was more so the idea of all of the escalated insanity of she's losing her mind. They're maybe they're gaslighting her, like all of this of driving her insane, or maybe is it actually all happening around her? Like that was the concept more in my head as far as the the Rosemary's Baby approach. Um, other than yeah. yeah, like you said, like the the apartment building. Um, situation. There's also a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of inspiration from some of the work of Polanski because he also did Repulsion and Sisters and The Apartment and things like that. This movie is like kind of a mishmash of like someone took a bunch of, of nods from maybe, I guess you could say better films and was like, let's mix up our own, our own stew of these ideas. But what you guys are in for is some really solid performances across the board. You also have a cast of just so many colorful people. Like you're going to get Jeff Goldblum as a photographer. You'll get uh, Lenny Brosco from uh, law and order. That's uh, Jerry Orbach. Um, he he's in it. Uh, he's great in it. And we mentioned Sylvia miles, Jose Ferrer is in it. Ava Gardner is in it. Um, Christopher Walken has a, a small role. Like, like obviously second. he wasn't big back then. <laughs> yeah. You get that, that wacky little dude, William Hickey. Uh, everybody will know him from, he was in, um, he was in the cat from hell and tales from the dark side. And I think he was in a couple of tales from the crypt episodes. You've seen him in everything. Christmas vacation. He's, he's a really weird, just a strange skinny little man. He it seems like he's always been old, uh, but He's uh he's in it. There's there's a lot of great people in it. But yeah, if if you guys have seen like The Ninth Gate with uh Johnny Depp, you know, things like that, it's got it's got that feel. It's got that like gothic horror. There's definitely Satanisty type of stuff going on. There's some things that involve maybe the 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 energy or the apparitions of serial killers throughout history, which is a really cool wrinkle that's thrown in there. Yeah. Dick Smith, who is a, a legend in, in practical makeup effects. He, he did the effects for the Godfather and the exorcist and taxi driver and altered States. You get some really choice Dick Smith makeup in this movie. There are some visions of hell, hell brought to earth elements that you're going to get to see that involve like people, it's sort of a mix of people wearing prosthetics combined with people that have uh, physical disabilities or missing limbs and stuff. And I, I know at the time, uh, Michael Winner got some shit for that, you know, where people said it was in poor taste. But overall, it it does create 
a unique atmosphere and a very haunting atmosphere that sticks with you. And the story does have, it, it isn't linear in the classic sense. It does kind of jump a little bit around, but I will say it's got a very acceptable and understandable beginning, middle, and an end. Like it's got a wrap up that I think is very satisfying and it's a bit EC comics, you know, like tales from the crypty kind of ending, like it's sort of a circular kind of ending, but it's, it's cool. I don't know. I just, I grew up with it and it, it always stuck with me as just like, I always loved the Sentinel. Like I'm always down to watch the Sentinel. It's, it's like a nice homey kind of feeling. I think it's, it's interesting. And one of the things that I ended up liking about it when you showed it to me was it's not necessarily all just following Allison throughout this. And it's not all entirely about just her descent into madness and her kind of dealing with these tenants. We also get kind of a more investigative side of, okay, well, maybe she's not crazy. What's going on with this? As Chris Randon's character, Michael starts trying to figure things out and get involved. And there's kind of these two A and B plot running simultaneously. Because at the same time, um, there's there's a couple of detectives that are, they're positive that Michael killed his last wife. His last wife's missing, like nowhere to be found. And these cops are positive that he killed her. And they just can't find a body. So therefore, those cops are pushing the narrative of maybe Michael is trying to drive this girl insane or or doing things to try and kill her. So um, that's like an interesting wrinkle that adds like a another possibility what might be going on, which kind of harkens back to all those Vincent Price tales of, you know, a, a, an innocent woman being driven to madness. Oh, yeah. It's really her... It's like her her brother-in-law who's staging ghostly apparitions to make her have a heart attack and, and get her inheritance, that kind of thing. There's like a lot of different, it's a lot of different puzzle pieces thrown in, into the mix. Um, but it's a satisfying movie. It's, it, especially for people that like really dig on that whole gateway to hell kind of thing. You know, if you like Suspiria and you like, um, I'm trying to think of a couple others that really fit that bill. The Beyond... Like you had said, Beyond is a definite same vibe. Um, it's a house that that is built on evil. You know, that's a great that's yeah. a great concept. I I could watch that. Yeah, it, it doesn't get tiring for me. I think it's we're long overdue. No, I don't think it gets enough credit. Those. Yeah, I think the listeners might be like their heads might be spinning from the amount of a lot of the movies we're talking about have like crazy wacky third acts and like a lot of twists. So we're sort of like, we're kind of leading you guys on and we're, we're giving you the hors d'oeuvre and we're about to bring out the main course. Then we, then we step back and we're like, but you know what? We can't really get into that right now, which might not be satisfying. So we're going to get into a movie that we can talk about a little more freely. I think the most unsung film on this list, and it's agree. one that deserves more love. It deserves more credit. It, it, it inspired you could argue it, but I think you're freaking wrong. And it, it inspired several major uh, properties, you know, IPs that that the cinema world loves. I think this movie set the groundwork for, for those films. And uh, and I love it. And what movie is that, Tim? That is Joseph Rubin's Dreamscape from 1984. The last unknown region of the human mind is about to be explored. The world of your dreams. The 
passion, the nightmare, the mystery. You close your eyes, the adventure begins. Dreamscape, rated PG-13. Uh, like, oh, as some... you said, inspiring other films, even though it might not directly be mentioned, um, some people might say, oh, Dreamscape, Inception before Inception. And then the cool kids might say, oh, it's Paprika before Paprika. So... <laughs> dreamscape is one i got showed as a kid and i clicked with it i think the the poster doesn't it's misleading it is it almost seems more like oh we have kate capshaw in this so let's he's wearing a leather jacket (laughs) and these khaki pants holding a torch and there's a kid behind him like it's almost like they're really shooting for like this indiana jones feel but it ends up being this really cool kind of not even necessarily. It's way different it's like a than a fantasy Jones. espionage thriller of diving into dreams. Because we have Dennis Quaid's character, Alex Gardner, who ends up showing psychic powers as a um, when he's younger. So Dr. Paul uh, Novotny, played by Max von Sydow, ends up bringing him into a program when he's younger to harness his powers and train him and see what they can do with it. And then he decides, this isn't for me. I don't like being a lab rat. So he takes off and starts using and his powers And the initial concept, for... too. The, the, well, before that, though, the, the initial, the, the good plan for Max von Sydow, if you could get psychics to uh, combine with, with these dream things that they're working on, the whole intent was you could actually help people get through hangups, like deeply rooted hangups. By going into their dreams, seeing what their their mindset and their fears are, and like helping them go through those problems. That's the thing that Tim was talking about, where Alex just bails on it. And what does he use his freaking abilities for, Tim? Gambling. He's Horse like, going to the track. <laughs> yeah. Gambling. Yeah, he ends up winning, and naturally we get introduced to him <laughs> kind of as getting rolled by these other guys who are just wondering... How do you keep coming to the track and you always keep winning? You need to start sharing these winnings with us because we don't like not being uh, kind of included in on your good fortune. He's kind of a womanizing, um, you know, uh, like like gambling. He's not a horrible guy. He's just like an immature. He's like, he's like a teenager run amok, you know, with these psychic abilities, even though he's like not a Han teenager, Solo. but he acts like it. Yeah, yeah, like he's kind very of sure of himself. He ends up kind of getting into these binds. But yeah, so we end up having him getting kind of brought back into the fold because Christopher Plummer, uh, his character Bob Blair, is part of this kind of shadowy government agency who's working with Max von Sydow's group now. And Never a good sign. Decides, you know what? <laughs> that kid. I want that kid back. Bring him into the program. So they go out and they find him and they try to entice him to come back in. And, oh, you always showed such promise. And he ends up meeting one of the uh, scientists or the professors who are working with him. um, Jane DeVry is played by Kate Capshaw. Um, And he's kind of she's like a dream doctor interested to maybe I'll come back. Um, Also for the fact that Max von Sydow decides, like, I can clear things up for you. I can make things go away like it's this is your chance like get back involved with this so he joins the dream project of laying down and entering dreams to help work through problems that is the setup and we should mention a lot of times we talk about ratings on this show just from a historical standpoint most people know that 
Steven Spielberg was directly uh, related to pushing for a rating, you know, that was beyond a PG, and that's where PG-13 came from. We mentioned Red Dawn was the first PG-13 film. Uh, I'd like to let you guys know that Dreamscape was the second PG-13 rated film. Oh. And you could tell that uh, Joseph Rubin and crew were loving it and kind of like try to push it where it could be pushed. So this film... It actually feels more a little bit more like an R-rated movie. And it's because they kind of like, I mean, you know, the second film to be rated PG-13, they were pushing everything you could jam into a PG-13 movie without it turning R. There actually was a sex scene where it it's it's questionable the setup because basically yeah. Dennis Quaid he hops into Kate Capshaw's dream and gets a little freaky with her. And um, believe it or not, that was actually, that was cut. They wouldn't let that play, I think, in the theater. And I know in England it got cut. And I think when it came out on video, they they put that sequence back in. But that sequence was sort of out for a while. There was also a weird thing, if you're looking at England. In- England's got, you think America's got weird uh, censorship rules? England had an anti like an anti kung fu weapon gang oh, band nunchucks. thing yeah and they cut the nunchuck sequences there's a couple of dream nunchuck scenes that were cut out of this film when it played in england and they did the same thing with teenage mutant ninja turtle exactly. cartoons yep. in england they cut the nunchucks out Be- fucking fucking lunacy man yeah the the cartoon um Michelangelo got replaced with, I think it was like two hook type things or something like that. And then later on, they just got rid of it entirely. Hooks are okay. Nunchucks, no. It's just yeah, completely ridiculous. But yeah, the 80s, it was a wild time. You could do a lot of things, but you couldn't show nunchucks in England. But yeah, we're, get, we're, we're, we're getting into some, like, <laughs> off onto other tangents I think here. the romance um, scene could have definitely have been trimmed down and not hurt the film yeah. as a whole. It wouldn't um, have hurt it. Not because there was anything that it was like, oh my God, like, it's, what are we watching? It's more so just like, this goes on longer than I thought it would. And uh, it's not really moving forward anything. Yeah. So I think that's the, the only part. Yeah. The film's got, it's got a couple of bumps. There's a couple little bumps like that. Um, but man, this movie, it's a perfect example of that great, unique shit that comes out of like that, that era. Because when you think of 1984, we got Dreamscape, and we also got Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, that's, like, pretty awesome. And there's some people behind the scenes on this film uh, that are some of Tim and I's favorite people. I mean, you've got Chuck Russell, uh, who's oh, yeah. scripting this, and I think produced it as well. And Chuck Russell went on a few years later to direct Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, which a lot of fans deem the best movie. Then he went on to make The Blob, which we've gushed about enough. But... Uh, but yeah, you, you know, you've got you got some good talent behind the, the the camera and some good talent in front of the camera. And the way this film progresses, you know, it's got it's got a lot of big concepts because um once things go in more of a nefarious direction, you end up having a certain faction of the, the shadowy figures that are now connected to this project, you know, they're kind of trying to figure out if you get into someone's dream and you fuck them up, would it affect them? You're like, what What if you sent in like a dream assassin, you know, to, to go in and like either give someone nightmares or 
place suggestions in their minds or maybe what if we can kill people if we get a strong enough psychic would it be possible to like stop a person's heart you know that sort of stuff so you got your Dennis Quaid, Kate Capshaw, Max von Sydow group who are the good guys and then you got everyone's favorite psycho oh, David Patrick Kelly who was in you know, he's so great he, you know him from the Warriors he was uh, Sally in uh, Commando he's in a lot of different things um I think he's a David Lynch a regular as well. But he plays, uh, uh, do you remember the character's name? Uh, Tommy. Yeah, Tommy yeah. Ray Glattman. He plays this, you know, total self-absorbed dick who also is a psychic. And, uh, you know, that ends up being the nemesis for Alex Gardner. Uh, they butt heads constantly. Alex, of course, tries to remedy everything with smiles and sarcasm. And, hey, you know, no big deal, bro. But then, you you, you know, you've got... You've got your sociopath psycho who just wants to, you know, I'm better than you. And uh, you, you think you're the, the top dog around here. I could do shit that you can't. I could do things no one can do. He's that guy. He's like Michael Ironside <laughs> from Scanners. He's like the Revoc of this movie. Um, so there's th- this series of bizarre vignettes of, of Alex going into people's dreams, Tommy going into people's dreams. And then you've got Kate Capshaw's character sort of monitoring things. and they're trying to figure shit out. And some of them are goofy and weird, like a dream would be. There's the guy who's positive his wife's cheating on him. That's sort of like a slapstick kind of I'd buy that for a dollar kind of Benny Hill. You, too, you know, Fakuna. there's like a weird humor. <laughs> <laughs> you too, Fakuda. <laughs> That's the meat of the be- the middle is all of this stuff. They're kind of working their way through and getting more used to the technology as Alex also gets better at harnessing the ability to dive into dreams both with their equipment and without their equipment so they're trying to solve things like the uh, a child who is having these night terrors very uh, kind of like cody from before i wake of he doesn't want to go to sleep because of what's going to happen to him and then we have he like keeps ranting said, about the snake man the snake man the snake man comes to get me there's yeah. that whole situation and all of this is kind of happening but it's also playing a part later on just for the fact that the stuff that's happening in here of the dreams as he's getting better at it, as he's learning new skills, as he's experiencing what other dreams are happening to people, that'll all come back to us later. But on the flip side, all of this is the groundwork that's getting laid while Eddie Elbert is playing the president who is having these nightmares of a nuclear apocalypse because he feels that he's responsible for kind of the the quick approach into a World War III scenario of the bombs dropping if he doesn't get involved in getting rid of their nuclear arsenal, uh, which is causing problems for a number of other organizations in the government. So the ultimate goal being Blair decides, well, what we need to do to help the president is we need to move forward with this new technology and this new program so this way we can have somebody help the president um, and kind of resolve his issues that he's having in these nightmares. So we're kind of working sure. towards that being the the big lead up at the, the end of all this. So you've got fantasy and really, really unique, uh, very well done fantasy. I mean, they, they pull out every stop that they can pull to make dreams seem real, like like different people's dreams and the vibe of those dreams. I actually think that 
the dreams in Dreamscape feel way more dreamy than the dreams in Inception. Like when people dream in Inception, they just dream that they're all wearing like Armani suits in dry business meetings. Not what I would imagine anyone dreaming. When they're dreaming in Dreamscape, sure, there's some corny, you know, like 84 style visuals, but they're done with such passion and and such uh, like uh, moxie. They're just going for it. Yeah. That it makes for a cool scene. And then uh, as Tim was hinting, you know, the movie starts going from like fantasy stuff into more espionage type political intrigue, which is cool and kind of brings forth a bit of a 70s, uh, you know, um, three days of the condor kind of like like that kind of stuff. The paranoia uh, thrillers of the 70s, which we both like a lot. So maybe that's why this movie resonates with us so much. And then we're not really giving away the details of what happens, but I think it's safe to tell you guys to maybe entice you more that if you've got, if you've got a group with their heart in the right place, and then there's maybe the more shadowy, less trustworthy government uh, vibe that's, that's been injected into their, their group. Maybe there's some, there's some darker things at play with some other characters that we're not going to give specifics on. And maybe those two things cross paths in a way where they're unexpected, but they happen. And that creates, I would have to say, and it not only creates, but it propels the third act, which I think is just some of the most fun, great shit from the eighties. Like I really, I love the last half hour of this movie. I think it's awesome. Yeah, I think it really goes full tilt into, like, do you want kung fu movies? Do you want straight horror? Do you want fantasy? Do you, do you want, want stop this? motion animation snake monsters? Uh, you know, like, that's awesome. It's like there's stop motion in this. So, yeah. There's, I, um, there's a lot. I think it's a film, like you said at the top of this, it's very underappreciated, which is surprising considering, like, this cast and the... It's definitely not like an alienating plot line. I think this is something that would probably entice a lot of people of delving into dreams and also the the back and forth intrigue behind the political aspirations. It's all of these things that you're already probably watching in other shows, just all crammed together into this fantasy film. Yeah. That I think it's it's a dream. There's an element of it, like because of the time that it was made, that if this were a TV show from that era it could have worked i mean if you think of um what's the uh, uh, quantum leap yeah you know it it has that kind of episodic feeling especially because it's dreams where you could have like i, I could see this being reworked you couldn't make this script into a tv show but someone could have taken the concepts of this movie and pitched it to a network where it's like every week you know our, our our lead goes, or a team, you know, of like three or four people or something. Yeah. They go into dreams and it's a different dream every week. It could have worked. As it stands, I love that it's just a, a one-off movie, uh, you know, with no sequels or anything like that. But there's a few cool things about Dreamscape that like the score is psychotic. It's all, it's all synth <laughs> and it's super, it. super wacky. And one of the reasons you might not even realize why you love it, Maurice Jarr, it's J-A-R-R-E, he did this score. And this fucking dude made the music for Lawrence of Arabia, 
okay? He did Jacob's Ladders music to top it off, which is a weird tie-in. Um, but when I looked him up way back, because I was just like, who is this guy? I never thought that I would see uh, like a, a string of films that, that are like Dr. Zhivago, like any film nerd <laughs> knows Dr. Zhivago is like a classic. Would you think that the guy who did Lawrence of Arabia and eyes without a face and Mad Max beyond Thunderdome, he also did something as insane as top secret. Like he, what a, what a crazy <laughs> career this guy's had. And apparently Nobody on the production, all the main players, they did not want a synth score. They wanted him to do like an orchestral score. But apparently, Maurice just pushed that shit. He was like, you gotta trust me. What I'm making is gonna be haunting and weird and then like really crazy and bombastic. And he he kept telling the director, it's gonna give your movie an identity. And here we are. 30 plus years later, we're both talking about how much we love the crazy synth score in this movie. And and so good on you, Maurice, for sticking to your guns. When the movie opens and the first couple scenes, they really hit you with this, as you said, like this chaotic synth score that's coming at you at 11. <laughs> it's super chaotic. It's, it's pitching 11 like it's a Nicolas Cage movie in 2018. But they end up kind of, you just kind of get used to it where it starts to just, yeah, this makes sense. Like this dreamscape that just feels right throughout the rest of the film uh, that yeah. I love the the score to this. A tiny little side note. Do you happen to know who was asked to play Tommy, who, who the production wanted to play Tommy? What if I told you it was Kevin fucking Costner and really? Kevin Costner said that he did not want to play second fiddle. He did not want to play this supporting role. He wanted to play the lead. So he declined. And I'm thrilled because I cannot picture this movie with With Kevin. Kevin. I mean, I I would watch it, but I don't want Kevin Costner to play Tommy Lee, man. No way. Like, there's just no way. Yeah, I can't picture him like doing the nunchucks. (laughs) No, I I mean, maybe he would have because he's young and like, we we wouldn't have known him as you know Kevin Costner, but um, but yeah. So that's uh that's Dreamscape in a nutshell. I highly suggest that if you like, uh, I don't know. I mean, the episode's called Dream Worlds and Hellscapes. This has both. So if you like Dream Worlds and you like Hellscapes and you like a little a little political intrigue and you you know you want to see like the heroine from. Uh, Oh, Indiana Temple Jones, the Temple yeah. of Doom, you know, kind of hanging out with Dennis Quaid and, instead of uh, Harrison Ford. This is a, a, a no brain, like absolute. Yes. Like you got to watch this movie and the Blu-ray that's out is super good. It's got a ton of extra shit on it. That's completely worth its its money. No problem at all. I know that Tim and I's heads are probably a little spinning and a little scrambled right now because I kind of knew when we were going into this that it wasn't going to be the easiest episode. Uh, to kind of present to people because we're we're not presenting uh, run-of-the-mill narratives. Every narrative in every one of these movies has been a bit hard to put into words. And I, I hope that we've done a good job. I, I hope that you're all excited to maybe dig up these movies if you've never seen them or revisit them. If you saw them when you were younger, maybe you'll take something else away from them. I had fun doing this episode. 
it was definitely cool. I had a blast. I love the these kind of weird concept episodes. Um, so I'm sure as we get more unhinged, you'll see more of these in the future. I do <laughs> want to mention non-movie related, but very similar to our dreams and hellscapes. For anybody out there that does read comics, there are two that I just want to mention uh, that you might dig based on the themes of this episode. So one is Tremor Dose by Michael Conrad. Uh, it's about this woman who is having these dreams where she starts seeing these posters that have a picture of this guy that says, have you dreamed this man? And she starts seeing him around and then she ends up going to this um, kind of lab to get investigated and try to find out what exactly is going on? Why am I dreaming of this person? And it starts with this kind of very basic concept that starts going into this wilder and wilder idea of we start getting to more of that like dreamscape program of there's all these agents and it gets into more of the horror territory of there's somebody inside these dreams that's not part of the group that we don't have accounted for. But Drummerdose is certainly kind of a, a super interesting one if anybody out there um, either on like something like Comixology for digital or something, um, I think it finally got a trade. But more on the, the Hellscape version, if anybody is familiar with the manga Berserk uh, by Kentaro Mira, um, unfortunately he has since passed away, but anybody who is familiar with it knows definitely that it gets into a very hell-heavy territory of all of this weird imagery and horrible demonic type things. But otherwise, if you're unfamiliar with it, check it out. Uh, it's a great read, and if you're not into reading, there is the anime from the 90s, and then there is the the three-film, kind of more 3D animated series that you might find on Netflix from the uh, late 2010s. Um, so two other things to check out. So for people that are writing this down, it's Berserk, and what was the title of the first one? Uh, the first one is Tremor Dose, and Tremor the second Dose. one is D-O-S-E. Berserk. Yep, D-O-S-E. Cool. And yeah, speaking of people trying to track things down, I do read all the messages that get sent to us. And something that I keep reading from several different people that have written to us is, can you please list all the films that are in all your episodes? Because I got to go back and like listen through to try to write titles down. Um, for those that are asking that, we do have a letterboxed and it's pretty well updated. And I think um, one of these nights, Tim and I will probably go through and make sure that it's it's like perfectly updated. We kind of have to go through like our anatomy of a slasher, like the real slasher stuff from the 60s and 70s, because we did sort of list off more movies than we might actually have titles for up there. Yeah. But we're going we're gonna to get to that. And also, we have not had an opportunity in the last couple episodes to bring up Bob Clark's Black Christmas just because the the <laughs> topics didn't apply to it. Now, no aspect of Dream Worlds and Hellscapes applies to it, but we haven't mentioned Black Christmas in three episodes. So I'm choosing to mention it now. Uh, Bob Clark's Black Christmas. Just watch it if you haven't seen it. It's a great holiday horror and a wonderful piece of Canadian proto-slasher mayhem. And now... Your quote for the week. Derek, please listen to me. But if you choose to stay, which it seems like you guys are choosing. Derek, please. You understand and agree 
to the following terms and conditions. Derek. One. Derek, this is a virus. You talking. hereby waive your right Derek, please. to your own personal bodily integrity. This is not you. Two. Per the state versus Neville Reed, my colleague and I will not be held criminally liable for any felony or misdemeanor that you may be a victim of, including, but not limited to, aggravated assault, aggravated battery, disorderly conduct, destruction of property, mayhem, and first-degree murder. And three, terms and conditions may change or be updated whenever the fuck I want! Consider yourselves notified. You can reach uh, either of us separately on Instagram. You can find Tim at Mr. Time. You can find me at Foul Signal Art. And you can find both of us at Don't Open This Podcast, no apostrophe. Uh, you also could hop over to Hive and Twitter at Don't Open This Pod. Or you can shoot an email and let us know over at Don't Open This Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, as we said, we're going to be ramping up for our summer series, so start shooting us over some ideas for what you would want to don't open this podcast summer camp to be called. As we yeah, otherwise we name the episode to Camp Blood, <laughs> something of that nature. But yeah, help <laughs> us with the mailbag. Write us with questions and recommendations and anything you can think of. Yeah. And so for Mike and Tim, uh, also check me out on our other sister podcast, Screen Refresh. Otherwise, we will see you again in two weeks. Pleasant Sweet dreams. dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet and pleasant dreams. Stop it! Stop it!